listening to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer and studio owner Greg Curtis. First of all, Spotify finally filed for its direct listing on the stock market. Yes, it's going to be on the New York Stock Exchange, and this listing name will be called SPOT, S-P-O-T. Makes sense? Now, this is interesting because it's not an initial public offering. This is a direct listing. And what that means is Spotify itself is not selling stock, as is usually the case. The existing shareholders will have a chance to sell their stock. But it also means there's no underwriters. So that means the big chunk of that money is not going to investment banks. So this is very, very different. Spotify thinks it can get away with it. The only problem with this is we don't exactly know what the share price is going to be. The estimates are between 90 and $132 per share, but it could well be more or less, and who knows how it's actually going to shake out at the end of the day. If we value the company at anywhere between 90 and $132 per share, we find that it's worth $23.5 billion. $23.5 billion, with a B, dollars. And this is based on the outstanding shares that have already been distributed to investors. Wow, a lot of dough. All companies, before they file for an offering, a public offering, has to file a document with the SEC that pretty much gives all the pros and cons of why you should invest or shouldn't invest. So there's a lot of data, and there's some new data, in fact, that we didn't know before. For instance, Spotify basically had $5 billion, almost $5 billion in revenue last year, but its losses were almost a half a billion dollars, $461 million. Wow, that's a lot. We also found out that users stream about 25 hours per month, and 31% of their listening comes from playlists. Spotify also has almost 3,000 employees. I never would have thought there were that many, actually. Another interesting fact is that Spotify has paid out almost $10 billion to rights holders since it started in 2008. $10 billion. That's a lot of money to go back into the music business in an avenue where there was no revenue ever before. So thank you, Spotify, for that. Another interesting tidbit is the fact that Sony Music owns about 5.7%, and two other major labels own less than that. But figure that Sony could make over a billion dollars out of this deal as soon as Spotify goes public, and especially if it goes at about $100 a share or so. That's a lot of money, and we'll see how much of it actually goes back into the pockets of Sony Music artists. I bet it isn't that much. So Spotify pretty soon will be public, and then we'll really see what it's worth because the stock market is going to tell us for sure. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, in the music world, I know everybody thinks I'm tough on Gibson, but they're just in the news so much, and here we go again. Gibson laid off 15 people from their custom shop, 
And when you look at this, you think, wow, that's the one place you probably shouldn't lay off anybody because it should be making money for them. It should be a real good money maker. But no, they laid off a variety of people from different positions, and this includes many veterans and supervisors. So that's not a good sign. But an even worse sign is the fact that the S&P, Standard & Poor's, lowered Gibson's credit rating yet one more time to a level of CCC minus. And what this means is default is imminent. Boy, that means that you won't find too many lenders that will want to lend them money at this point. Gibson owes $550 million in two stages in July and August. And really, things could come to a head before then because one of the things we found out is that the company has been receiving monthly waivers from lenders that can be removed at any time. And the reason why is Gibson was supposed to maintain a certain level of profitability. And once it fell below that, all of the terms of the loans basically were no good. And at any time, these lenders can actually pull the loans and request payment like right now. And if that happens, Gibson's done. So we hate to see that. It may sound like I'm hard on Gibson. I'm just reporting the facts. Really, I would love for Gibson to be a healthy company. The music business is a lot better when Gibson is healthy. So let's hope that despite all these problems, it returns to profitability and its rightful place in the music business sometime soon. My guest today is Greg Curtis, who's a session and touring trumpet player and accomplished engineer. He's also the founder of The Bridge Recording, which is one of the busiest scoring stages in Hollywood. The studio regularly hosts sessions for Emmy-winning television shows, big-budget Oscar-winning feature films, record-breaking video games, as well as music recording sessions for Grammy-winning productions. Since opening in 2010, The Bridge Recording has hosted over 400 television shows, over 300 films, and hundreds of music, video game, trailer music, and media library music recording sessions. Clients include Disney, DreamWorks, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, Universal, Lionsgate, and just about every other major studio you can think of. I spoke with Greg via Skype from the control room of the studio in Glendale, California. I looked at the studio website, and it was really impressive. I got to say, the initial virtual walkthrough was wonderful. Oh, cool. Glad you like that. I wish more studios would do that. Well, it's, it's brand new. That is tip, you know, tip of the uh, iceberg kind of thing. It's, that's a brand new technology for Matterport and my buddies here in LA at Zinvu. And I'm the first one of their, um, their clients. So I expect and hope to see more of that coming. Cause it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> come on, come on a walkthrough in, in the virtual world. The other thing I should say is I just had lunch with Al Schmidt and he was telling me how much he liked the studio as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think he's only been here once, maybe twice, uh, once on a string date for a Greg, Greg Wells, uh, uh, project. And it was a great pleasure having him here. My God. Yeah. A legend for sure. And it's so great to hear him say that. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. know he doesn't, uh, doesn't mess around with faint praise. That's great to hear. Let's go back to the beginning here. I know that you're a schooled musician, a schooled trumpet player. It seems like you've played around with audio from a very early age. So can you give us a run through on that? Okay. Yeah. Mid eighties, early eighties in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, my dad 
well, actually, 70s, he would build Heath Kits stuff. And uh, I would see these televisions and stereo systems up here in our house. And, you know, it actually worked. And uh, I always had fun trying to take them apart. Um, and when I got old enough in high school, I started doing that myself. Uh, I would go through catalogs and look for a cool speaker or something. And I went ahead and just built them myself. So my first set of speakers, uh, I had some big 15-inch woofers from Radio Shack, another, you know, mid-range from Radio Shack and a tweeter from Radio Shack, all this stuff. It was a small town, so I just would bike over to Radio Shack, buy these parts, go to the hardware store, lumber yard, get this lumber, build these speakers, use this old radio gear. Uh, I had a, you know, microphone input on this old realistic eight-track thing. So I was a trumpet player. I still am. But a high school trumpet player, just record myself, try to play along the tracks, record, and then have play through my own speakers. Um, I always enjoyed that. Then in college, uh, undergrad, a music uh, performance major, total band geek, basically, uh, in Madison. And I transferred to Milwaukee. Um, and by then, I was old enough to start hanging out in clubs and bars. And I started... Uh, recording and actually mixing front of house at some local clubs and had pretty good results uh, and got better. And then I eventually got hired to a private um, front of house PA for hire kind of thing and started going on to different venues and working with bands and things. So a lot of fun as a front of house mixer in Milwaukee in the nineties um, and got through school. Uh, then I went to North Texas for grad music performance, trumpet player. And I didn't do anything there except play be a musician because that's pretty pretty hardcore pretty hardcore gig yeah there in Texas. Um, got through grad school and decided it was time to make a move. And where do we go? Do we go back to the Midwest, uh, Milwaukee, Chicago? Not really. Been there, done that. New York, maybe. Um, how about L.A.? There's a lot of recording going on down there, and of course in Texas, uh, Jay Saunders and other professors uh, can kind of came out of the LA scene, the Las Vegas scene. And so uh, my wife and I, you know, booked out here for a while and uh, decided, hey, it looks like LA is the place to go and you can't beat the weather. <laughs> uh, so we moved out here in 2000. <laughs> do we want to be stuck in blizzards in Chicago and then, like know everyone or do we want to go to sunshine and palm trees and not know anybody? <laughs> That's due to the song, sunshine and palm trees. So, you know, wings in a prayer, man. We, we moved out here from Texas. Um, yeah, uh, in 2000, and I didn't know anybody, and I, so I just started playing and getting salsa gigs and whatever I could do on trumpet. Um, I ended up in some uh, local chamber groups, uh, orchestras, and things. And through those guys, I met, uh, kind of got into the USC crowd. It, with those guys, I got hooked up with composers because musicians at USC usually end up playing for, uh, film school uh, composers and stuff, and one of these guys eventually needed a recording engineer. I was like, hey, you know, I, I got some recording jobs and mixing and all that. Let's, let's do it. Um, concurrently, because I wasn't doing much out here, I went to UCLA and got a, a degree or certificate in audio engineering from UCLA in the early 2000s. And that, that actually was a good class. It was two, two years, pretty intense, lots of math, lots of electricity. And the, the neatest thing about that was that they didn't have a studio at UCLA. So that meant uh, the profs were all working pros. 
we would hold class at Westlake or at uh, Capitol mm. or Conway. <laughs> yeah, pretty um, good. So, yeah, pretty cool. Um, that, by the way, that class has changed significantly since I've been there. Now it's geared more towards producers and uh, self-recording musicians and things. Back then, you know, we learned tape and flux and all that good stuff, which I'd been using back in Milwaukee, whatever, back in the day. Um, so, you know, I had new bright ideas. I was really gung-ho on the whole engineering thing, and I got just got a couple of new 414s. I was like, all right, uh, Patrick, my new composer friend, let's, let's go. Let's record some Cambodians in the basement at USC. So long story short, I ended up working a lot as a film scoring engineer. <laughs> the fancy way to put it started out pretty humbly, but eventually I started working around town at all these great um, studios and scoring stages and things. And got somewhat busy at that. Started playing trumpet last, started engineering more. Uh, started working out of my house. I built a, well, was probably one of the only houses in LA that has a basement. And I utilized that as a little recording studio. Good good sound isolation and some decent rooms that made sound better. Um, worked a lot down there. And then along comes uh, baby number one and <laughs> it's time to get out of the house. You know, just too many strangers coming by and hanging out <laughs> working all day. Yeah. Um, so let's figure out a way to move out of the house with the whole studio engineering thing. Um, so we started looking for buildings, got some money together. Um, spent a year looking. This is 2006. Yeah. Uh, Burbank. You know, we had a budget, uh, couldn't find anything that worked. Everything had weird tenants or just a weird building. Nothing, nothing really worked. And then my realtor found this building here in Glendale, which is a lot closer to where I was living in Atwater. Um, twice the size of the buildings we were looking at in Burbank. Uh, freestanding, great power, no tenants, completely empty aside for some, a couple of uh, little, little offices in there. And it was like, okay, it's perfect. Let's buy it. So we bought it. Which <laughs> um, kind of sucked all the resources dry, um, but we still had enough money to, you know, let's figure out how we move forward with, with filling it out. Let's, let's get a plan together. Well, it just stayed on it for about a year. I started designing audition designers, found Jay Kaufman, uh, who blew everyone away. Uh, and then things started to happen. Uh, uh, through Jay, we started design process, concept, what what we wanted to, to achieve. And we were just beginning this design process when Jay's old buddy, uh, Alan Sides, um, who had acquired all this, uh, the CBS Radford scoring stage, and uh, Paramount Pictures Stage M, uh, th- those items those studios basically went on the market as far as their equipment stage gem was being demolished see this radford the tadio scoring stage uh was being turned into entertainment tonight uh editing cubicles mm. so all of a sudden there's scads of mics starboards cue systems chairs music stands uh, breakout boxes all this crazy important stuff was available here off market basically um not cheap, but way lower than you could buy it all retail for sure. And the stuff is all battle hardened and thought out, like the Q system. Uh, that's that's always a hairy deal for orchestral recording. It was all perfected and bulletproof. 
So I was like, okay, we are setting our sights away from a multi-room facility that you see all over LA to a scoring stage. And what do we want for that? Well, I loved working at O'Henry and that had just gone off the market into a private, uh, private ownership, I guess, or, or being leased out. Yeah. Let's build something like O'Henry a little bit bigger because we got more space. Um, but let's have it sound more like the Eastwood stage or like a, a historic scoring, uh, studio lot scoring stage. Because we, you know, in town, we've got Capital um, One, or Capital A, East, East West One, um, uh, Ocean Way. A. Uh, these, these are similar sized rooms, but they're all 1950s rooms or 1970s rooms. And they have a different, they don't sound like a scoring stage. They're more, they can take amplified instruments and that kind of thing. I would look more for like a recital hall or a scoring stage, but a similar size to those rooms. So we went down that, that road, considering we could buy the equipment and getting money in line, lots of phone calls, make this, make this happen. So in long story short, the next year or so we spent at Stage M, decommissioning this console I'm sitting in front of right now, gathering microphones, stands, chairs, podiums, gobos, you name it, all this equipment, and started um, designing and, and demolition of the building that I'm in now. Um, and going through the city. So uh, that took a while uh, to go through the city, about a year, designing, demolition, construction, and we opened 2010. That's that's a very short story for that. Uh, in the meantime, I'd gone off the market as an engineer. I just became 16 hours a day, six, seven days a week, working on this project um, to, to design with Jay and then build this place and then uh, try to open it. You know, there's a lot of integration that goes on, a lot of testing. Um, and things. So I became more of a scientist and studio builder for about five, six years, um, which was interesting and very rewarding and, and exciting. It sort of fed my this weird mad scientist thing. And uh, thank God I had the uh, resources to do it and a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And we finally opened, and we had, lo and behold, we actually had clients, which was awesome. Because you do this, and you're off the market for six years. And you open up and say, hey, we're ready for business. And then something's got to happen, right? Yeah. You know? And <laughs> what's going to happen? Um, luckily, and not luckily, through these, through these contexts I made as a musician, and then through scoring, and then engineering, these guys I was hanging out with, they don't help me build this place, um, had contacts and the place was being built correctly and people kind of be kind of fed along with it. So when we opened, we had very good solid TV shows in here right away, including the Simpsons and person of interest and some, some good, good folks. Uh, the key to the our success has been, it was, and is, and always will be for audio or engineering or music in general, is that you just be, be absolutely competent at what you're doing. Just don't F it up. <laughs> um, so that's what we, we did. It wasn't easy because to get to that point, you screw up. Um, but we tested so much with our friends, with guys who just wanted to cheap, do a cheap record, you know, for really low rates just to work the bugs out and there weren't that many bugs which was cool but just learning, learning the workflow where things were how things just sat and uh, what things we needed 
you know, put on the, uh, the in the in bin with what needs to be improved. And after a few months of that, we got there. What I find really interesting in this is it's a difficult enough operation to open up a commercial studio of any kind, but to go to the next level and do a room specifically for orchestral scoring. Wow. Yeah. That's tough. That's been the key. That's the key though. That's what makes, that's what's making it work for us. Um, it's in the other part of that, not only is it a new facility and recording, which is like almost like a dying art now, it's just one room. It's binary. We either have a client or we're closed, you know, we're yeah. on or off. We don't have multiple rooms all feeding and trickling nickels and dimes over the days. It's either we're booked or, or dark, you know, so it's, that's really tough. That's, that's been one of the toughest things to grapple as a business, as a business practice. But I think the key to um, our success is that we honed like a laser in on this one specific uh, thing, orchestral scoring, and it's not like we can't do music. I mean, we do plenty of music all the time. It's just no one's willing to pay 500 bucks an hour to, you know, record or do overdubs or, or scratch tracks, right? Yeah. But our client base has no problem with that. And they appreciate a place that sounds great. Musicians think sound great. It's easy to work in. It's capable uh, and looks great. And everyone's comfortable. Um it just it became an easy proposition for them to say, okay, we found the place we want to do this TV show or this new series, and, and it's it's repeat clients and it's building, building, building. Uh, we're up, we were up twenty percent last year in business and uh, making money, so it's, I'm so gratified by that because it's scary and perilous. You don't really realize how scary it is until you do it. Sure, it's it's just the notion until it's real, and it's believe me, it's real. <laughs> oh. One of the interesting things here, again, is the fact that you have a really specific niche, but yep. I think you probably hit it at the right time because there are fewer and fewer of those yep. rooms around than there used to be. Yeah, there's attrition. It's the last man standing thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And we timed it right uh, in a number of ways. 2008, we started building. There was a huge economic crash. So labor and materials were on the market uh, cheap for building a place, any kind of place. So easy to find workers, easy to negotiate price. Um, and we got opened around 2010, 11, just as these new TV shows started happening. Walking Dead was an early client, you know, these, these cable and now network and streaming shows have really brought up a level of scripted television. We saw the end of the, um, uh, of non-scripted television. Uh, and we're seeing a huge popularity rise of high budget, high quality scripted television. And it's just growing, snowballing as, you know, Amazon and Netflix are, are, are booking the stage for their, for their programs. And that's, that's excellent. So we, we timed it right there too. And like you said, Greater LA has so many multi-room studios built in from the 50s through the 80s. But not many rooms of this size and of this capability is less than a handful left. So that plays in our hands as well. And that's ignoring the rest of the world who is also a company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way. What's the story behind the name of the studio, behind the bridge? Oh, the bridge is it's just a great term. You, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're incubating this project and building it and books went tears and all that, you, you want to name it right. And we went through a couple of iterations 
until we, we, we came up on the bridge and that was my wife's father's suggestion. And it, it just makes sense. It's, um, it's a concept, it's a physical object. It's even somewhat philosophical in a way. It's a musical term, it's a musical instrument term. Uh, it's, it's just a way in philosophically bridge old and new. Uh, it's a violin bridge. It's a yeah. part of a musical composition. Yeah. It just, just fit perfectly for us. That was it. became the bridge. <laughs> you had a very specific outlook or approach, I should say, or idea about the acoustics of the room. How did you come yeah. come upon that? Um, I wanted. Uh, I like. I like Capital A. I like East West One for what they are, but for in my visualization of this kind of music, I want something more lush, less bass trapping not out of control by any means, but flatter across the spectrum. Um, and something that you could combine with basically overdubs. If you were to do a project, say, at uh, East West, or I'm sorry, uh, Eastwood stage, Warner Brothers, and then do maybe strings or brass or something here, you'd be able to meld them into each other without a problem. I wanted a similar uh, acoustic statement of these larger stages in a, in a smaller room. And, uh, we were able to achieve that. It took a while of room tuning, which you do with any good room, but the dimension of the room did work out for that. I wasn't able to hit my goal with reverb time, which was like 1.2 without it getting a little wacky. So we, we got 0.8, um, which is excellent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a big secret here. Hollywood Films use a lot of reverb. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But the but the the reverb is different though. It's 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 a very latent effect. You hear the initial attack, and then the reverb is is this, this tail that's maybe down forty dB from the initial noise, um, or initial sound, I should say. I wanted something lush and diffuse, so you basically can't you can put a mic anywhere; it's going to sound great. Um, those are those are the those are two of the sound concepts: big, big and lush are very diffuse and the diffuse part helps musicians play together as a musician. I hate being in an overdamped room where you're playing into a pillow. You want to need some feedback and you need to hear across the room. Yeah. That's what we've achieved. It's gratifying to hear musicians, especially the musicians that we get in here regularly tell me that they enjoy playing in this room because they can actually hear and they fit together. And then the room sounds better because the musicians are playing together and then the clients are happier. So it's, it's a, it's a snowballing effect. So I didn't want to build another Bill Putnam room. I didn't want to build uh, something from another era. I didn't want something that would withstand crushing Marshall stacks. I wanted something that would acoustic instruments could blend, and uh, that's that's what orchestral recording, acoustic recording, is all about. You're uniquely qualified to do this, being a trumpet player and also being a recording engineer who's recorded orchestras and recorded bands. So you you understand what it should sound like and you already have the experience of knowing what the stages sound like where the average engineer would not know how to do that yeah sitting in the back of i was in the milwaukee civic symphony for four years maybe second trumpet and sitting in the back of an orchestra for that long a time and that was just one orchestra that i was in you really get a sense of what in playing all sorts of music from monteverdi to uh, philip glass um, what, what's that sound concept and sitting in the audience a lot too. I always went to concerts 
just having that being informed and just part of you and then going places we know that's wrong or knowing it's right, seeing how it works. And then, like you said, doing all this work outside at other places, you'll say, well, that works there. That's cool. That, you know what? That doesn't work there. Being, having to turn off the air conditioning at this place, that's not cool. Mm. Let's not do that. Yeah. Um, having just distilling stuff over years and either consciously or consciously, unconsciously, you know, trying, to, trying to filter that out and then really putting it on the line when they actually came time to do it. Having, you know, having that concept that's really secure and, and, and it's been really helpful. Yeah. The other thing I find interesting is the fact that you were able to break into the industry as an engineer, into the, the, the scoring industry as an engineer, where I know there's a lot of music engineers, and I come from the music side, that would like to get into that and can't. But you were able to do it, and successfully so. How do you do that? I, I found it, it good to be indispensable and just just to be in the trenches with, I think I, I got a bit lucky because I got to know these young cats coming out of USC and I was a bit older, maybe 10 years older than these guys and just a totally unknown. But uh, as a fellow musician, they trusted me. Um, just being able to say, I'm, I'm all in on this project. I know there's no money or I'll see you at the back door kind of thing. Uh, and just, blood, sweat, and tears through these little projects um, and being there and being really open with what you know and what you don't know and just asking and, and, and just being um, the guy, their audio engineer, the guy they call to do it, just building up a reputation as someone who really cares, who has good ears, and who will go to the extra mile to do that in that realm. Like, but you have to get there first. Just you just have to be available and indispensable, which is really hard to do. Yeah. Now that I'm 48 and I have three kids, I can't do that anymore, really. But thank God I did that back when I was, uh, you know, 32 yeah. or 30. Let me ask you a question then, because we have similar backgrounds in a way. I started out as a musician and I was for a good part of my early life and then became more the engineer producer in, on projects. But I never lost the musician. I always felt that even though I might have been in a technical capacity, I never felt like, oh, I'm just an audio engineer. I never wore that hat. So for you, what's the most fun thing that you do? <laughs> um, being a musician, I can't deny it. I, that, I would, if I were in the perfect world, I would just be a musician, just be an artist. Yeah. That's really where my heart is. <laughs> yeah. And you, like you said, you, you can't lose it. And it's, and it's almost... Like you can't not do it. It's just the way it is. It's unescapable. It's just not me to not be in my position. Yeah, it's always there. No matter if I'm at the if I'm at this console uh, working as an engineer, I'm the engineer, no doubt about it. But there's a musician in my head talking to me, and that that's a that's a huge asset because I can read the score. I know what's coming on. I got the, the song form down. And, you know, you said you were a producer. That's one thing I, did, I haven't done that I kind of wish I could have done was be a producer because I think as an informed musician mindset with an engineering background, um, that's kind of a no-brainer to do. But, man, I can't figure out how to correct that. I don't, I don't know if that's it's too late for that kind of thing. Man. No, I don't think it is. That's, that's one field I never went into. Yeah, I don't know. The music, the music industry is so... Uh, it's, it's, it's a moving target right now. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I found interesting, now when I, if I'm producing something and 
when I'm tracking, I don't engineer anymore. I'll hire somebody and I'll usually hire somebody that's a whole lot better than I am if I can, if I can afford them. And even though I know how to do it, I know what to do. I find that it's easier to divorce from it and just concentrate on the music when you don't have to think about it. You know, it's so much easier. For me, if I have to do two things at the same time, I don't know that either one is getting my best. There's a sacrifice. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a struggle when I opened this place. I wanted to be basically an assistant engineer. I wanted to be engineering on everything that came in the door. Um, That was a bad idea, you know, Mm. because I got a, my Milton, my uh, basically record assistant engineer here at the studio, is so good. You just end up stepping on people's toes and let let people you're paying do their job and, and step back and allow yourself to do the job. And for me, it was hard for me to get around the idea that I'm not really a full time recording engineer anymore. I'm a studio owner. That that was tough. It, it still kind of is, <laughs> obviously. Um, but the more you step back, the better it gets, the more success you'll have doing that one thing at a time. Sure. You have to do one thing your whole life, but when, you're, when I'm a studio owner, I'm a studio owner, that's it. I'm not an engineer. I find that just gets in the way. Let the people who are pros and who do it professionally all the time, at least for that project, do it for you. That's what they're for. It's hard. Though, cause you, you just want to do it because you, you know how to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to step back. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to bite your tongue, basically. Just let, it, let them do their job. I understand that you have a unique humix system. Yeah. 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 This console from Stage M comes with, I think it's only one of its kind in the world, uh, a bespoke, in the English term, Neve 48 channel uh, Q mixer. It's eight, eight cents out. Uh, it takes all 96 back from Pro Tools rig, 48 selectable tracks or channels, and then you've got eight cues to send them out to stereo pairs or, or mono. And that's built into the end of the console, so it sits right here in the control. Wow. And that for this size studio is wonderful. All the other scoring stages in town have a Q-mixer out on the floor, which is basically a big live sound, 48 channel console mm-hmm. with a dedicated guy out there. Um, that doesn't quite work for this room, although it's quite large. Um, that would take up pretty valuable floor space out there. Um, but being here in the control room allows us to have our system here, work in the queues alongside the engineer, um, and usually running Pro Tools at the same time, all here in, in the room. And, and that's great because it's safe space. It's just a great workflow. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a neat thing. It's a fragile little little beast, but <laughs> it is a wonderful thing. It allows us to do what we do. No one wants to see Oxens uh, turning the cue cue sense. It's not cool. It doesn't work in this in this business. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Mind, at least. Right. No, that that's a neat thing. Um, but oh, just you don't want to you don't want to start diving into it because everything in there is custom made. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a fragile thing, but you know, it hasn't hasn't been a problem. It's worked solid. I took notice in the studio virtual tour on your website. There was an ISO room with a harp in it. Was that originally designed? Did did you think, wow, I need a space for the harp? Because again, that's one of it's (laughs) it's not a particular instrument that's easy to record, especially (laughs) 
when there's a lot of orchestra around it. So I looked at that yeah. and I thought, wow, that's kind of brilliant. <laughs> that's, that's really good. <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's, it's really just an ISO room, but you know, it's basically that room is pretty much, pretty much a harp room uh, for these clients, these TV shows. Uh, one time I think there were like at least three shows that all had a harp in there, you know, hmm. um, it, it just works out the way and you're right. It's just easier to record and you don't have to record the harp for every take. If they do one good take, they're, you know, they're done enough to sit through more overdubs. I like to do a ton anyway, but it's just clean. And yeah, there's one engineer who puts an MS on it. There's all sorts of exotic miking I see on those things. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just, a, uh, it turned out really cool. I, I wish we had another ISO booth, but you know what? Those gigs are, are far and few between. You could do piano drums and bass all separated, mm -hmm. but you know, don't do a whole lot of those gigs. Yeah. Um, so usually piano in one or woodwind, a special overdub, uh, woodwind in one and then harp in the other. Um, but the asterisk is the Simpsons would do a lot of recording here. Um, had their harp out on the floor with Gail Levant playing. Um, that's just, just the way they did it. And it worked fine for what they were doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think, I think one of the reasons is because there were nine timpani and kitchen sink uh, perk in, in the harp room <laughs> <laughs> and no room for a harp. And then the other room was a full drum set with Bernie Dressel or Zamidi in there. And then there were two pianos and four midis and rigs. It's just craziness. So yeah, harp out on the floor, but usually yeah, harp will be in, in that booth. Um, and we did that tour of the photography during a this setup for recurring daily weekly TV shows. Last question, Greg, what's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way, or maybe you received from somebody? Hmm. Um, focus, focus on what you're doing and be competent. You have to know what you're doing. And you're not going to do it again. Mm -hmm. Um, that is, that is the way to success. Uh, when you get to that level at the beginning as a, as a solo engineer, Yes, I, I, I would experiment and flounder about a bit. Um, but when you open a business, then things change. You have to have to know what you're doing and, and be focused, and you have to ignore um, uh, distractions. So, yeah, focus and competence are, are the two big things. Another thing, uh, this is more than one reason, hire people that are smarter than you, have mm -hmm. been there, been in the trenches. I've got a great, in, uh, great manager of the studio, Vicky Giordano, uh, Milton, our first engineer, is a battle-hardened veteran. My designer, Jake Hoffman, started in the 70s with Oceanway. Um, just can't get better people than that. Uh, just surround yourself with well-informed folks that are smarter and been there before you. And stay focused on your goal. And don't get distracted. And be a nice guy. <laughs> be a real human being. <laughs> you know, yeah. You really screw things up if you're a jerk. <laughs> and people don't laugh too long. To find out more about Greg and The Bridge Recording, go to thebridgerecording.com. That's one word, thebridgerecording.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts this is bobby osinski i will see you next time Bye.